Welcome. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the nation. The phone number 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on this here program? Okay. Uh, we got to listen. I'm not a business guy. I mean, I know the basics and all that. I can tell you when I think there's a problem coming. And I talk to a lot of people who are way smarter than me in large part so I can explain things to you. And we need to have a conversation. We need to talk about private equity. Uh, and some of you have corporate overlords who are private equity people. And I'm not meaning to talk about those people. I'm just talking private equity in general. Now, what is private equity? Um, it, typically, what, what I'm talking about specifically here is companies that are privately held. So there are companies that are publicly traded on the stock market. They're private companies. This is one of those weird twists of language with the left where the left thinks that if you are publicly traded, it means you're publicly owned, meaning you're owned by the government. No, a publicly traded company means you are a private entity in the United States that any person in America can buy a part of. If you go to the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, uh, what have you, you can buy stock. Uh, I own stock in Apple, for example. It's done well for me. It's a sore subject there I'm not going to get into, but I own some stock in Apple. I used to own stock in Facebook. I sold it. Largely, I own uh, mutual funds and just rely on my 401k. I don't own, I, I my, when I say I own Apple, I think I own 10 shares of Apple stock. Uh, I don't own a lot of publicly traded companies. I got some in my Robinhood account. Um, I need to sell probably. I own like AT&T, which isn't a glamorous stock, but it pays a good dividend um, and stuff like that. Um, but generally, I rely on uh, my buddy John Lindvig to do all my investments for me. Um, it just he's, he's been a family friend for, gosh, two decades. Uh, and I just I'm he's smarter than me. Uh, my buddy David Nicholas uh, is a uh, financial planner in Atlanta. Uh, rely on him a lot. I actually have started doing ads for David. He's a good dude. Uh, and he's, he's smarter than me. He pays attention to this stuff. I pay attention to doing a good radio product. So I talk to guys like that uh, to talk about these issues. And I don't invest in private equity. Private equity is different from you buying stock on the stock market. Private equity is um, major players typically, not you and me but really rich people buying into businesses that are not on the stock exchange and running those businesses and either selling those businesses ultimately for a profit or taking those companies to the stock exchange to go public and then they get stock and divest their stock and, and make lots of money. And more and more rich people are moving away from the stock market and publicly traded stocks into private equity where the uh, they think there's greater risk but also greater reward. It's something that uh, should concern a lot of people for a lot of reasons. 
Muhammad Alarian is a uh, noted uh, economist, money manager, a rich dude who knows what he's talking about. He believes geopolitical uncertainty, this is from Market Insider, arising from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is accelerating an investor shift from public markets into private markets. In a Bloomberg op-ed published Thursday, the, the top economist wrote how this transition was already building up before the war. Now, I've got this. Uh, Mohamed el is, is a Bloomberg opinion columnist. He's the president of Queens College, Cambridge. He's the chief economic advisor at Alliance SE, the parent company of PIMCO, where he served as CEO and co-CIO and chair of Gramercy Fund Management. Let me read you some of this. The war is amplifying and accelerating six important secular evolutions that were already taking place well before the first Russian troops invaded Ukraine. Indeed, on the eve of invasion, inflation was already a problem. The Federal Reserve was already behind the curve. It was losing control of the monetary policy narrative, and the days of massive liquidity injections were ending. With many policy options virtually exhausted by the enormous response to the pandemic, the possibility of stagflation for the global economy was already a risk. And at the other end of the probability distribution of potential outcomes, the upside scenario of high growth and transitory inflation was declining. Persistent U.S.-China tensions together with the pronounced politicization and weaponization of trade sanctions during the Trump administration, were serving as headwinds to continued globalization and liberalization of economic and financial cross-border interaction. The need to intensify the battle against climate change was urgent, as was the realization of the complexities of the trans transitional issues, including the replacement of fossil fuel, China and other countries were looking for more ways to build bigger pipes around the Western-dominated core of the monetary order. Driven by an enlarged set of stakeholders, companies were being pushed to take serious their social and environmental responsibilities, including starting to self-sanction themselves more away from harmful activities. In addition to speeding up and intensifying these developments, the war has increased the scope of their interactions, making the universe of potential outcomes now much more broader, but also more path-dependent. Ironically, the complexity of potential outcomes has a powerfully simple implication for the investor management industry, a bigger migration from public markets into private ones, such as private equity, venture capital, private capital, and real assets. Now, this sounds like gobbledygook for a lot of people. Let me explain this. Prior to Russia invading Ukraine, we were becoming less and less globalist in our outlook as a nation, as was the Western order. More protectionism on the rise, more nationalism on the rise. China increasingly does not want to be a part of the Western system of finance, but wants to supplant it and bypass it. And publicly traded companies and major entities, if they invest in public companies that may bring scandal upon them, they, they risk themselves being punished and therefore they would like to fly under the radar in private equity markets. When the wokes are coming for your publicly traded company, 
because you're doing things they don't like? Well, then the easy thing to do if you can afford it is to not have a publicly traded company. Have a privately traded company where things are more hush-hush and less exposed to the volatility of markets and investor pressure from the wokes. One of the things that's happening with a lot of publicly traded companies is social interest millionaires and billionaires buy up lots of stock, then show up at the shareholder meeting and demand that the companies do certain things that may actually not benefit the financial interest of the company, but make the wokes feel good. So in a world in which massive liquidity injections shielded investors from virtually any and all headwinds, public markets offered significant potential, especially when leveraged. But as all of this comes to an end, the good times on the stock market may be coming to an end for the really well-off, and they want to get a continued good rate of return, so they're looking at the private equity market. In other words... In order to stay under the radar, away from the wokes, and in order to participate across borders without getting into regulatory trouble or boycott pressure from the public, the best thing for the really rich to do is to go into real property and to go into private equity. There's a problem there. Doomberg, which is a must-read for me, uh, Doomberg, it's, it's doomberg.substack.com. It is a must-read. Says a piece out, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Problems. In the public stock markets, valuation is straightforward. Stocks trade hands between willing buyers and sellers during market hours, and when the markets close, there's a final trading price for the day. But things aren't always so transparent. Imagine you're a money manager with a large position in XYZ stock. It's somewhat illiquid in that it doesn't trade in big volumes. Since your compensation depends in part on the closing value of XYZ on December 31st, you decide to make a series of small buys in the last few minutes into the close, artificially pumping the value of XYZ up by 5%. Your entire stake now gets marked there, but it isn't real. You've merely painted the tape. Now, there are rules against such manipulations in the public markets. But what if XYZ Company is a privately held startup? If a founder sells 15% of her startup to an accredited investor in exchange for an injection of $150,000, so you sell 15% of your company in exchange for $150,000, then it might be fair to say the company's worth a million dollars. But what if the founder's parents made the investment? What about a best friend? a business partner in a different but related venture. Throw into the mix critical deal terms like distribution preference, board seats, voting rights, any dilution projections, and any other negotiated concessions, and it quickly becomes apparent how difficult the concept of private value can become and how easily it can be manipulated. Now, for those of you who think this is a lot of gobbledygook, just basically follow along with me here. In the public stock market, there are rules and regulations governed by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the rules of the stock exchanges themselves so that you and I do not get screwed when we make an investment in a publicly held company. Those rules oftentimes don't apply to private equity. And what are the millionaires and billionaires doing right now? They're pouring money into private equity 
and out of the stock market where things are more nebulous. And now we're in war and the economic good times are coming to an end and a recession is looming and inflation is high and interest rates are going to go up. The entire house of cards could come crumbling down on a lot of major private equity companies who've been wheeling and dealing off the books, off the public books, to make a lot of money for themselves. The division between the rich and poor continues to grow because of investments in private equity, among other things, and the good times may be coming to an end and may be coming to an end in a market that is less regulated than the one you and I invest in, which means there's going to be an even bigger headache for people. On top of that, the Federal Reserve is warning of a brewing U.S. housing bubble. Now, this one I could tell you, we've talked about this, the amount of people who are buying up houses as quickly as they can because they believe there's a shortage in the housing market. They're driving up prices, and prices are increasing so rapidly that the the Federal Reserve says there's too much irrational exuberance in the market. They have a calculation for irrational exuberance. When prices increase at an exponential rate that can't be justified based on fundamentals, there's a threshold they use based on what prices should go up based on inflation, what prices are actually going up. 95%, if prices go up exponentially at a rate of 95%, it's considered irrational exuberance. Currently, we're at 115%, meaning houses are selling at 115% of inflationary pressures, meaning a whole lot of people are jacking up prices on houses and people are buying them at rates that overvalue houses way too much. And as interest rates go up and the economy begins to slow down, there are going to be a whole lot of people holding a whole lot of houses that are no longer worth what they paid for. At the same time, all the people in private equity have been investing in private equity markets to keep it off the regulatory books, to be able to go across national lines. And the net barriers of international trading are starting to go up as interest rates are starting to go up. The entire economy is looking more and more like a house of cards. Employment is down. That's a good thing. But the stock market isn't happy because it looks like the economy is slowing down just as jobs pick up. We are living in profoundly uncertain and destabilizing times. And what is the preferred solution of the Democrats who control the House and the Senate and the White House? What's their preferred solution? All of the bells are going off. All the warning sirens are flaring now. What's their preferred solution? Well, it's to put boys and girls teams, you bigot. If you don't like it, deal with it. Okay, I want to state something that should be obvious that may not be obvious for people. I like a high thread count sheet, but if the threads are crap, the sheet's going to be crap no matter how many uh, threads you need. It just, it's it's amazing how people want to highlight that. And the reason I highlight this is because Bolin Branch makes high quality sheets and they're not a bajillion, majillion thread count either, but their threads are super high quality. They use 100% organic cotton threads. They give super softness. You get a better night's sleep. 
They're not just buttery, soft, and breathable, impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. I can attest to this. Every time you wash them, they just seem to get a little softer, and they hold up so well over the long term. You know, I'm on, gosh, maybe my second set of Bull & Branch sheets in, in a decade. They just hold up so well. They're a quality product, and they give you such a good night's sleep. Oh, my gosh. They're so fantastic. I really do love these sheets, and I love Bull & Branch. You can, too. They are fantastic. They're so luxurious. Three U.S. presidents sleep under Bull & Branch sheets. So you can get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code ERIC at BollandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D Branch.com. The promo code is ERIC. Get a good night's sleep under Bull & Branch sheets. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be a part of this here program, I am going to go back to the phones to John. Welcome to the show. John, how are you? Hey, Mr. Erickson, how in the world are you? Hey, I'm let me good. tell you something. I listen to your shows and you are you do such a fine job. I listen and my mind starts cranking, and uh, you you allow me to expand my thinking. So this is something I do want to ask you about. Um, everybody's talking about inflation, inflation, inflation. Well, I have a quick question. Uh, I don't hear very much talk about deflation of the United or the uh, what is central bank. Uh, mm-hmm. note that we have is it actually the dollar bill that we have the private western uh, reserve note is deflating rather than actual products inflating can you help me kind of divide the two yeah okay um so our currency is first of all considered the reserve currency uh for the world uh so everything on planet earth can be sold in dollars or bought in dollars uh in every country including china uh and in the black market um the u.s dollar is preferred above all else in fact there's a uh, that series I've been talking about on Amazon Prime, Jack Reacher, that that's a central plot point is that in the black market around the world, the the $100 bill is, is the preferred currency choice. Um, so now our currency can go up and down, uh, but it goes up and down based in relation to other countries. It, what's different is the actual price of product versus the cost of currency. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. Now, uh, John called in and he was talking about inflation of uh, and deflation of the currency. Uh, and does that have something to do with it? And, and there is inflation or deflation of the currency. And frankly, a lot of times that we're, we're dealing with the same thing. It's, it's somewhat complex, but uh, in general, what we're talking about with our inflation right now is because we put so much money into the economy. Well, because we, because Biden put so much money into the economy. Uh, what happened is it 
overinflated people's uh, desire to buy at the time, which caused people to go out to buy products where they were in short supply. So they had to raise prices on those products in the free market to control supply and demand, prices increase and decrease. And then in the consumer side of things, they were going into so many stores with so few people, they were having to, employers were having to raise wages to incentivize people to come back to work, which caused them to have to raise prices to cover the increase in wages, which had to be passed on to the consumer. Now, deflation is not good. Deflation is actually more destabilizing than inflation. Inflation is bad. Deflation is worse. Now, uh, a, a, a currency in a, a deflationary sense, a currency can go down in relation to other currencies on the planet. So, for example, usually when you go to Europe, you can buy a little more with the American dollar in Europe, or actually you can buy less with the American dollar in Europe. You go to Asia, you can buy more. Um, currency deflation and inflation is slightly different from economic and price inflation and deflation. Deflation of prices is bad, and the reason why is because let's say, uh, let's take the situation right now. Let, let's say that there's massive deflation now and prices collapse. Are you going to accept a decrease in pay? Let's say you're making $20 an hour right now. All the prices collapse. So you can buy a whole lot more with less money, but are you willing to take a cut in pay? And if consumers are no longer willing to buy your dollar hamburger or your your $10 hamburger on the menu, and now they're only going to buy it for $5 and the price comes down, are you willing to take the cut in pay because the consumer is no longer willing to spend as much? It, it has all sorts of economic ramifications for us. You know, during the Great Depression, what happened was uh, the current, the, wasn't uh, forget the currency, uh, the economy deflated. Prices collapsed. The problem with that deflation in the economy was that wages collapsed further. So prices all collapsed, which was good, but then the average earning of an American went below even that. And so you were still weren't able to buy a lot. What the country had to do was go through a massive spending binge at the government level, very much like what uh, Joe Biden did when he came into office with COVID. He dumped a lot of money into the economy. The problem was that uh, in the deflationary economy of the Second World War, it was a good thing to cause inflation. You needed to cause inflation. You needed to get wages and prices to go back up. We didn't need to do that now. And Joe Biden did it. And they warned him not to do it. The, Larry Summers, we should have listened to him. Larry Summers was the Secretary of Treasury for Bill Clinton. He was the Director of National Economic Council for Barack Obama. He's the president of Harvard University. He's a liberal Democrat, but he's also a world-renowned economist. And on February 4th of last year, right after Biden got into office, as the Democrats were preparing their COVID relief package, this is what he wrote. While there are enormous uncertainties, there is a chance that macroeconomic stimulus – 
on a scale closer to World War II levels than normal recession levels will set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation with consequences for the value of the dollar and financial stability. This will be manageable if monetary and fiscal policy can be rapidly adjusted to address the problem. But given the commitments the Fed has made, administration officials' dismissal of even the possibility of inflation, and the difficulties in mobilizing congressional support for tax increases or spending cuts, there's a risk of inflation expectations rising sharply. Larry Summers pointed out that under Joe Biden's plan, if the breadwinner of a family were laid off, the family's income over the next six months would likely exceed $30,000 as a result of regular unemployment insurance, the $400 a week special unemployment insurance benefits and tax credits. In other words, an unemployed person under what Joe Biden did for COVID would take home more money than an employed person with a pre-tax income of $1,000 a week. An unemployed person would take home $30,000 in net, in net spending. Net spending is after taxes and everything else. An unemployed person would take home $30,000. An employed person making $52,000 a year in the private sector would take home less in net pay minus taxes and everything than the unemployed person. And that causes a labor shortage and that causes price spikes and that causes inflation. It was all predictable. It was all predicted by Larry Summers. The Biden administration chose to ignore it all and go for broke. And now they've broken us as a country economically because that's what they did. All right, uh, back to the phones we go, 877-973-7425. Pierce, you're up next. Welcome. Hey, Eric, thanks for taking my call. You were talking about the, the housing and, and the economic instability that's on our way. I do a lot of deliveries on in construction in North Georgia, and I have two builders so far that are going to finish what they've started, and they're not starting anymore. One specifically told me, he will be cash heavy by the end of August, and he ref- he's not going to start any new building uh, homes unless somebody has cash on hand. He's not going to do any speculation, and he's absolutely not going to do any starter homes because the prices are so high. Another builder said that his conscience will not allow him to build 1,900-square-foot starter homes and sell them, continue selling them at four and $450,000. So he's backing off, and he's going to go into remodel. Um, and Look, uh, several other builders, it's it's getting bad. It's, uh, there's guys seeing down the road. Yeah, What's look, it, and good for you to have, have these friends with consciences and, and, and builders with consciences. It, listen, you can't – My the, the home that my wife and I first bought was built in 1947 – it was 2,400 square feet, and we bought it. It was on a half acre, and we bought it for $110,000. Uh, this was in the year 2001. To come 22 years to have a 1,900-square-foot home on no lot sold for $400,000, even in Atlanta, is yep. kind of insane. Yeah, it is. And like I said, there's other builders that that are commercial builders, 
I mean, as far as residential, they're large-scale builders. They have several subdivisions. But even they are not even developing lots until they know that they have a buyer for that lot and that house that's going on it. In other words, it's under contract when they start clearing yeah. the trees off. So there's there's a lot of these builders that I'm listening to that are saying, you know, keep your eye out. And our national debt has got to be pushing us into a problem also with with where we're at, what, thirty trillion, a little over thirty trillion in debt right now? Yeah. And that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna send us spiraling, I think, eventually. Is gonna collapse yeah. it. But it makes oh, I, me wonder, so. Eric. It yeah, makes look. me wonder about something because I'm a Christian okay. and I like to look at things through the biblical perspective. Uh-huh. And you got Putin doing what he's doing. And I'm wondering, I'm watching some of this going on, and I'm wondering, is this the four horsemen starting to march their way through? <laughs> you you are not alone in having that conversation. Um, you, you are not alone in having that conversation. Uh, you know, it, but it's not just that. Um, the, the number of, of volcanic eruptions and earthquakes around the planet. Uh, a friend yep. of mine who's a geologist and mineralogist says it's actually not an increase. It's just we're more aware of them now because of um, talk and the like. Uh, that that yeah. uh, news coverage, we find more of this, but we're about to have everybody's warning a famine now uh, that we're yep. given what's happening with wheat and corn. We're going to have it. We're going to have major disruptions yep. on the planet, uh, birth pangs, but, you know, probably still a long ways off. Now, for those of you on eschological terms, Pierce, keep this in mind. Uh, if you go to if you go to Washington D.C., there's the Museum of the Bible, and they have a wall uh-huh. when you exit. Uh, you see it when you leave the museum, and it has a list of all of the languages in which the Bible has still not been uh, translated. And you can't uh, right. cover the earth in in the Scripture until you've translated the Bible into all these languages. So we're getting close. The numbers go down every year on that wall. There are fewer and fewer there. But uh, we That's can't right. have the, the complete end times until we have the Bible in every language. Uh, so, but we're headed there. That wall gets less and less every year. Pierce, thanks very much for the phone call. Have a great weekend. Um, I will. One more thing, Pierce. I assume you're still listening here. Because I get this question a lot. Because you all know uh, in seminary, uh, have it, i got to start going back to classes. I'm, I'm ready to go back to class. Um, but I do think in these terms, and I'll just say this. You are admonished by God Almighty himself to worry about the day, not tomorrow. And you wring your hands about the end times and the apocalypse. You're worried about the future. You're not worried about today because I, I can guarantee you this week, I can say with certainty that this week Jesus isn't coming back. Probably not next week either. There are still unfulfilled things that have to happen, and they're not going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Um, But you can certainly see the way the world is headed, and you can certainly feel it. Um, But a a wise friend of mine once said, eschatology, the study of the end times, uh, eschatology is the one theological area of the Bible that people view from their present. So in the early 1900s, before World War I, if you read any studies on eschatology, they were all overwhelmingly positive. We are on a trajectory to grand and glorious things. And then in World War I and the period into World War II, 
uh, eschatology turned very, very negative, that the end was upon us and we're all going to die. And that was a uh, hundred years ago. So don't, don't spend your time fretting about the future. The future will take care of itself. Now, um, I got to tell you about Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile is a company that wants your business. Now, listen, I because we get these emails occasionally from people. What about this other company? Uh, somebody else in talk radio says this other company. I, I can't tell you about those companies. Well, I can. And I, one of the things I will tell you is there are a lot of people out there who want your money in this space for cell phones. And there are companies out there, some of which you've heard of, that you think are conservative outfits and really they're just like a subsidiary of a major corporation and this angle caters to conservatives. Patriot Mobile isn't actually like that. Patriot Mobile is a business that exists not as a subsidy of another cell phone company that's just using this angle to lure you. Uh, Patriot Mobile was explicitly set up as an MVNO, which is a uh, mobile virtual network operator, meaning they use the cell towers of the major companies. It was designed to get conservatives on board and use their profits to advance the conservative movement. That's why Patriot Mobile exists. The left has been doing this for about a decade on their side, where they have certain companies who pledge a portion of their profits to the progressive cause. And the people on the right, in fact, a buddy of mine came up with the idea of Patriot Mobile and said, if they're doing it, why can't we? Let's do a company, let's call it Patriot Mobile, and we'll dedicate a portion of their profits to the conservative cause. You want to have a dollar-for-dollar impact greater than what you yourself can have? You go to Patriot Mobile, and you get great rates, you get great coverage, and you get good discounts if you're a veteran, a first responder, a teacher, a gun owner. What you do is you go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. You get free activation. You can also call them. They've got 100% U.S.-based customer service. You call 972-PATRIOT. Tell them I sent you. You get free activation. You get great cell phone service. You can even carry your existing phone number over to them if you want. Patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Hello there, it's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Let's go back to the phones. Mary, you're going to be up next today on the show. Welcome to the program. Hi. Hi there. Hello. Hi. First, I want to say I love your show. You're great. I love the perspective that you give on things and the way you explain things and make them easy to understand for, like me, I'm really late to the political game, and I appreciate you, especially with Rush being gone. Thank you very much. Now, my first question, is there a Democrat uh, equivalent to a rhino? <laughs> yeah, dino. Uh, that's what the Democrats call them now, dinos. Um, they're, they're actually, the specific term is a blue dog Democrat. Um, and they they tend to be in the South. Democrats in the South tend to be more socially conservative than Democrats nationally. Uh, they're kind of a dying breed, but there are some of them. Uh, Josh Gothheimer is actually in New Jersey, and he's one of the more moderate Democrats who oftentimes votes with the GOP. Okay, I just I had never heard, and I wondered. Now, my second question is to you as a business person. I have no business sense, but regarding the um, electric cars and all this and trying to get rid of um, petroleum, normally it seems like when a company – makes a product and they build it, they complete it and they promote it and they offer it to the public. Why is the electric energy not being done in the same way? Do you understand what I mean? Uh, okay. Uh, see, can you explain that one to me one more time? I, I think I lost you. Okay. My question is, say with like clothes or cars or just anything, usually the company will build it complete it, make the entire system accessible, then they advertise it and make it available to the public. But with the electric, you know, 
The president killed the, the pipeline, is trying to, you know, take petroleum away from us completely and say, oh, go get an electric car. Yet there's no charging stations. It's, right. it's really not adequate and it's not ready. But usually when a product comes to the market, it's ready to go. So Tesla has done that. Um, so Tesla has a charging market. You literally can drive in this country from Key West to Vancouver, Washington, uh, and have a hit a ch- Tesla charging station the entire way. So Tesla has done it. They're the only ones who have done it. Now they've they've had government subsidies to be fair, but they've invested in it and they've licensed their charger to other companies to be able to use. The problem is for electric vehicles, it's actually harder to manufacture an electric vehicle efficiently than a lot of people realize. And Tesla had a head start. Uh, For example, in very cold weather, the batteries run down quicker. And so you got to have special computer algorithms that manage your battery better in cold weather. Tesla's mastered that a lot, have it. So all of these companies have largely expected the government itself to step in and fund charging stations and the like. And the government's not doing it in large part because a lot of members of Congress keep blocking it. They think it's a waste of time. They're kind of where you and I are, that the the, uh, private sector should do it, not the government. The private sector doesn't want to do it because the reality is the the amount of electric vehicles in this country compared to all cars on the market is less than 5%. I think Tesla is somewhere less than 1% of the total vehicle market. Um, and and there's no reason for anyone to move heaven and earth to invest in infrastructure that is costly to set up when there aren't a lot of people. Tesla did it as a selling point for Teslas. And if you're a Tesla owner, you take advantage of it uh, better than any other electric car vehicle in, in the country. Everyone else is dependent on the government. And the government can't get its act together. Uh, that's why fossil fuel is still so dominant and will be in this country for a very long time. It's 2022. Things are still crazy. Things haven't settled down. And now you got the Federal Reserve and interest rates. You got the economy. You got inflation. A lot of banks won't even return your phone call. Let's say you're a small business and you need a loan for $750,000 or higher. You see an opportunity where banks, they don't even want to see you. You want to buy a building. You want to build a building reach out to the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Loan. They've been helping small businesses become big businesses since the 1990s. They want to help you if they can. So spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for you. Their website is firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. Again, you need a loan, $750,000 or higher. You're a small business and you see an opportunity to grow. Share it with the Frost family and see if they can help you. FirstLibertyGA.com. That's FirstLibertyGA.com. First Liberty Building and Loan can help businesses nationwide become bigger businesses.